Hey, this is John Morgan. I'm the lead pastor here at Word of Life Church in the nation's capital. I want to personally thank you for taking time out to listen to our podcast today. It's our prayer that you're inspired and that your life is changed for the better while listening. So go ahead, enjoy today's message. Uh, I'd love it if you grab your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 1. You ready for the Word of God? Awesome. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, Say, may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose, and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. He was afraid, and he arose, he ran for his life, he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. We're in a new series, Rhythm. We're in part two of the series together on learning how to keep your momentum, whether that be spiritual momentum or relational momentum or leadership momentum, anywhere that momentum permeates your life, how to keep that in your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that it's alive. We thank you that it's powerful. We thank you that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. We thank you, God, that it's going to get into our life and penetrate and bring supernatural change from the inside out. Work with us, we pray today. Holy Spirit, have your way in our life. Do something powerful. Speak to us prophetically. Change us. Our heart is open. Our mind is ready. Our ears are tuned in to hear what you, Holy Spirit, will say to your church today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, turn to the person beside you and say, I'm excited about the Word of God this morning. Because you're very quiet. It does make me a little nervous when you're so Because that's not who we are. We're excited about the Word. Amen? We're excited about God's presence. Amen? We're believing God for good things. My mother, Thelma Claris Morgan, um, who's now in heaven, is the reason that I am saved. But over the years, uh, especially when she was alive, she featured in many of my sermons. She featured in many fabricated totally fabricated illustrations, uh, intentional hyperbole, and she was the brunt of many comedic stories that I made up. I think in some message she featured as a champion wrestler in the Australian WWF. In another message, I think that she was amongst Australia's most wanted criminals for bank robbery. None of these things are true. And, uh, and then one of my favorite stories, I, uh, I, I don't, did you have, do you ever have a clothesline in America? Do you have the clothesline? You know what I'm talking about? Do we have a photo of the clothesline? Yeah, okay. That's my Auntie Beryl um, putting, washing up on the clothesline. Do you have a photo of my mum? 
Yeah, that's my mom. So that's my mom in the backyard putting clothes up. This is how we used to dry clothes in Australia. So you'd hang it up, and then the wind would come, and it was rotary, so that would, that would go around, just that the wind would catch it. So my mom, like she's doing, she's grabbing a peg, she's going to hang. And so I'd tell stories about how my mom would peg me up to the clothesline, and then she'd just spin me, just spin me around, and then she'd stop me with a shovel. Like... And none of those stories were true. Neither of those ladies were my auntie or my mother either. But, and so my mother said to me one day, she's like, John, I listened to you preaching the other day. That story is not true. And I quoted Mark Twain to show my education. I said, hey, mom, never let the truth get in the way of a good story. Don't let the facts mess up the rhythm. Morris White, who was uh, in the band Earth, Wind & Fire in 1978, um, did a song, September. Many of you danced in nightclubs to that, and now you've repented, which is good. But in that song, he had a notable, nonsensical, nothing line that went, and it doesn't mean anything. It's not, it's not a language. It's not, he didn't get baptized in the Holy Spirit and pull a tongues message out there or anything like that. It's just a fill that he put in. And one of the co-writers of the song asked him, are you going to change that? And he made this statement. He said, never let the lyric get in the way of a good groove. In this series, we've been looking at things that will rob you of your momentum, thieves of your rhythm, things that get into your life that will block you from having the rhythm and the momentum that God has intended you to have. And momentum and rhythm is a part of God's design. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week. But we pick up the text this morning in a four-verse transition point in the life of Elijah. And in these four verses, we learn three important lessons about momentum. Here's lesson number one. Lesson number one is that momentum is the great exaggerator. Momentum is the great exaggerator. Elijah has experienced significant victory prior to this verse up on Mount Carmel. And interestingly enough, Mount Carmel means garden land or fruitfulness. So Elijah has made it to the top. He's climbed the mountain of success. He's climbed the mountain of fruitfulness, of of prosperity, of of breakthrough. He's on this mountain. And the Bible says in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 46, it says, The hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment, and he ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Elijah has climbed to the mountain, And he has prophesied rain, and now we read that he has overtaken Ahab's chariot to the entrance of Jezreel. He is running faster than the king's chariot driven by horses. This is supernatural momentum. John Maxwell rightly said, momentum will make you look better than you are, and lack of momentum will make you look worse than you are. Momentum has a way of just making you look absolutely fantastic, and Moses has some significant spiritual momentum, and it makes him look like a superhero. Here's the second thing, is that it only takes a moment to mess with your momentum. 
It only takes one moment to mess with your momentum. As we turn from chapter 18, to turn the page, and we go to chapter 19, we see Ahab, Israel's most wicked king, talking to Jezebel, notably Israel's most wicked woman, about Elijah, probably Israel's most famous prophet of all the things that he had done. It says that in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And Elijah had done a lot. There are a lot of things that Elijah had been active in. But James rightly tells us in James chapter 5 verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So Elijah is not a superhero. He's not a superman. He is like us. He has a nature just like us. James is encouraging us to look at his life and realize he is just like you. Elijah is just like you. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. That's verse 17. Then verse 18, then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Wherever there is motion, there is momentum. And Elijah has some fierce motion between verse 17 of James 5 and verse 18 of James 5. He prophesies drought, verse 17. So he walks into Ahab's court, challenges the prophets of Baal, challenges the prophets of Asherah, challenges the thinking of the day. Your God's not in control of the weather. My God is in control. And says from this moment, there's going to be drought. And over the next three and a half years, there was drought. And in that time, God speaks to Elijah and sends him to a brook where he's getting water from a brook and getting fed by a raven. When the water runs out in the brook, God sends him to a widow's house at Zarephath. And there at her house, he supernaturally supplies his own food and water and necessities and hers and her family's. At the same time, her son dies and Elijah raises him from the dead. We see him go up up onto Mount Carmel and he challenges the prophets of Baal and the people of Israel. How long will you falter between two opinions? If God is God, make up your mind, serve him. We're going to have a competition. Prophets of Baal, you outnumber me. There are more of you than there are of me, but I want you to make an altar, chop up wood, put a bull on the altar, call down fire. I'm going to do the exact same thing. And the God who answers by fire He is God. And we see from that passage of Scripture that the fire never fell on the Baal prophet's sacrifice. Fire falls from heaven, an intense fire. It takes out the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the water. Everything is annihilated under the power of the fire of God. And then Elijah goes onto the top of the mountain, and we go from what's happening in James 17, 5 verse 17, to James chapter 5 verse 18. He's on the mountain. Six times he sends his servant to go and look if there's any rain, and six times he comes back and says there's nothing. 
And then on the seventh time, he says, there's a little bit of rain. I, I, I see a cloud like, like a man's hand. It's, it's tiny. It looks insignificant. And Elijah prophesies and says, you better get running because the abundance of rain is coming. I don't know who that's speaking to prophetically right now, but it looks little in your life. And I'm telling here to tell you, if you can see it, it's going to come to pass. If you can see it, it's going to grow. You just got to keep trusting and believing God. And maybe right now, you're on your fifth journey to see it happen and it hasn't happened. And you got to go on your sixth journey to see if it's going to happen. Or on the seventh journey to see if it's going to happen. But if you just keep running, it's going to come to pass in your life. It's just going to happen in your life. That's God's plan. It's ordained by Him. And look at Jezebel's response to Ahab's report on Elijah. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. I want to encourage you, never let a negative moment, never let a negative mention or a negative misunderstanding or or even a negative misdemeanor mess up your positive momentum. It was written to the Hebrews, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We're encouraged. Don't let anything mess with your momentum. Don't let sin or weight. Sin, your failures, weight, the failures of other people in your life. Don't let sin or weight lay it aside, and you don't have to look for it. It's coming. It clings closely. It's there to trip you up. And so you've got to identify those things that are going to try to rob your momentum, and you've got to keep running. Sin and weight easily beset us, and they are momentum robbers. Here's a third lesson that we learn out of this passage of Scripture. That lack of momentum is the great exaggerator. Lack of momentum is the great exaggerator. Verse 3 says, Then he was afraid. And he arose, and he ran for his life, and he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. He was afraid. Fear entered his life. He was afraid. He ran for his life, and he comes to Beersheba, and then he leaves his servant there. Elijah is the exact same prophet as he was in the previous chapter, in this new chapter. But instead of standing against the prophets of Baal, we see him here now running for his life. What happened? Elijah allowed the lyric of Jezebel to mess with his momentum. Elijah let her words rob him from his spiritual rhythm. Keeping rhythm means that you need to identify those things that would happen in our life that are our rhythm stealers or momentum blockers, things that are going to come our way and rob our momentum. So what things can rob your momentum? Here's just a couple of thoughts before we close out and pray for you this morning. Never let, don't, don't let opinion get in the way of your rhythm. Don't let opinion get in the way of your rhythm. Elijah came near to all the people and he said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So there was confusion in their day. 
There was a differing opinion between the king and Elijah, between the community of God and God. There was a difference of opinion. They were double-minded, they says. And, and James says that you are unstable in all your ways. The, the challenge with opinion is when you sit on the fence that you usually get shot at by both sides. And the church today is under attack. We are under pressure in society for the church to fold to the feelings and the ideologies of the woke agenda. Now, the woke agenda is challenging because it's a feel-good agenda. It doesn't always make sense, but it makes you feel good. It doesn't always give you the right information, but it really makes you feel good about yourself. And the whole basis of that is if it feels good, do it. If it feels good, be it. If it feels good, no one has the right to tell you it's wrong. Because if it feels really good, then we should allow you to do it. So if your four-year-old gets mouthfuls of candy that he really likes and is just shoving candy and chocolate, the woke agenda, if you carry it right through, says, let him eat all the candy that he needs to eat because if it feels good, it's all going to be good for him. But we know if he does that all his life and never brushes his teeth, he's going to be up on the stage one day going, I'm a bunny. This is going to happen. The reality is I may not be nice to you. If it make you feel nice, but I'm affirming your feelings or your opinion, it actually may destroy your life. It could be destructive. There is pressure to conform to the thought patterns of society. The pressure comes to conform under the guise of hate. That's the manipulative thing. Well, you've got to make me feel good. If you don't make me feel good, then you hate me. If you disagree with me, then you hate me. If you say something contrary to how I feel, then that's hate speech. Now, let's be real. There is hate speech, but not everything is hate speech. If I just allow you to do what you want to do, if I disagree with you, it doesn't mean I hate you. In fact, if I disagree with you, it actually may mean I love you. It could be the total opposite. My mother, in a true story, after my second car accident, some of you have heard me talk about this, I'd smashed up my face. I hit my face on the steering wheel and broke the steering wheel of the car. That's the impact. And I remember laying in... Uh, the bedroom at my parents' house. And my mother was a godly woman at that point. I was nowhere near God. I was a long way from God. And I remember her bathing my face. And I'll never forget this. She said, John, I don't always love what you're doing. And I don't always like you. But I love you. I don't like your behavior. Sometimes you're hard to like. But you'll never, ever stop me from loving you. I will always love you, no matter what. No matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter how much you mess up your life, you'll never... What was my mum saying? John, I totally disagree with your behavior. John, I totally think that driving drunk is dangerous. Here's the proof. Your faith face is messed up. But I'm here to tell you I love you. I'm here to tell you I'm on your side. She disagreed with what I wanted to do, but she loved me as an individual. So never let anybody manipulate you. That if you don't agree with them, then somehow you hate them. Actually, the reality is you may love them and you may be trying to help them. 
And society is trying to control our mouth, our conversation. Isaiah put it like this. He said, I am a man of unclean lips. My conversation is wrong. But you know why? Because I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. I have adopted the conversations of my society and they don't line up with the conversations of God. I want to encourage you to be careful not to adopt convenient conversations just to fit your need for acceptance. Mark chapter 15, verse 32 says, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him reviled him. You come down off the cross. If you come down off the cross, then can we grab that? Just make, sit on it or something just in case it explodes. <laughs> Come down off the cross. We don't understand what you're doing up there. We don't get, look, if you'll come down off the cross, if you'll come down to our level, if you'll get down to where we're at, then we'll believe in you. But unless you drop your standard and come down to where we're at, we're not going to believe in you. That's what the world is doing to the church today. We've got a standard that we're lifting high. We want people to have life and have life more abundantly. We want people to experience the goodness and the greatness of God. We believe that God wants people healthy. We believe that God wants people to prosper. We believe that God wants people to live in abundance. We believe that the God's blessing can be upon people and the way that you get robbed is in your thinking. In your thinking. Your heart, your mind always regulates your hands. It's a biblical principle. What you think you're going to do as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Why is your opinion so important? Because your opinion is going to determine your lifestyle. Because your heart rules your hands. Society is trying to rob our way of thinking. I would suggest to you, I'm not going to debate with you on this, Everyone has their own little doctrine on the mark of the beast. Many of you have heard all the great biblical scholars talk about the mark of the beast. I personally think the whole idea of a silicon chip and all those things that they've been talking about for decades right now is a distraction from what the devil's doing. I do not believe that you're going to get a silicon chip. Most people would reject that. And you can believe it all you want. But the reality is you don't need a chip in your hand because you've got a phone. You've got a phone you can go and scan. You don't need, and, and the Bible says no man can buy nor sell without it. You can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast. But it doesn't say you buy or sell with it. It's not a trading thing. It's a you can't trade without it. You have to have it to trade. So you can't just come into America and set up a business without getting a visa, without getting a business license, without being legalized to be here. You can't go to Australia and just set up as an American a company. You have to get permission. To, and when you've got the visa, that gives you permission to trade. But you don't trade with the visa. I couldn't work in America until I had an R2 v, R1 visa. When I got my R1 visa, I was able to work, get paid in the church, but I couldn't do that before that. Why? But I've never traded, I've never gone anywhere and traded with my visa. You just can't trade without it. In the Old Testament, book of Daniel, which is a Old Testament book of Revelation, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't trade with, but what they say is, we're not going to listen to your training our education, training our religion, training our conversation. We're not going to listen to the way, we're not going to bow down to what you want us to do. And when they wouldn't bow down to the idol, what happened? They got put in jail. They weren't allowed to trade or sell. 
They were locked away because they didn't go along with the thought of the day. Your heart always regulates your hands. And if you look at the book of Revelation today and go over that, realize that the first part of chapter 13 is giving allegory. It's giving imagery. There's not a real monster coming up out of the sea going, and going to freak us all out. It's speaking about a society. And when you go into the verses about the mark of the beast, it stays in allegory. God's trying to tell us it's a lot more subtle than you realize. It's a lot more subtle. And the church is being seduced to be nice, to being seduced and pressured to be nice. And I'm here to tell you, at some point, you've got to let your heart regulate your hands. You say to me, John, what happens if you're wrong and there is a silicon chip? Don't take it. It's bad. When they go, go, oh, John was wrong. I'm happy to be wrong. But every end time person I've ever met since 1980s has been wrong so far. Read the Bible. Some of you are still trying to process this. But it's a biblical principle. As a man thinks in his, so is. Don't let offense, this is a perfect point for the next one. Don't let offense get in the way of your rhythm. Don't let offense, don't be so easily offended. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. How you handle disappointment, how you handle discouragement, how you handle offense is tantamount to how you'll handle success in your life. How discouraging has it got to be for Elijah to do everything he's done and they still don't believe? He has called down fire. He has single-handedly executed the prophets of Baal. And Jezebel still hates him. She's still holding on to her Baal worship. She hates Elijah. And all he's done is prove that God is right. How offensive, how discouraging is that going to be? I want to encourage you. We are are building here a multi-generational, multicultural church. And if you haven't noticed... The lead pastor is borderline opaque, which is sort of like a shade of white, but a little darker than white. I have slight rhythm, not a lot. And I was born in Australia. The difference between Australia, an Australian and a bucket of yogurt is left on its own. Yogurt will develop some form of culture. But I found that people, so here's what I'm saying to you. When we do things that may be offensive to your culture, don't be offended. Just go to the white guy, might not know. And maybe come up and rather than be, you offended me. Why don't you go, hey, you know when you did that today, can you explain why? Because in our land, in our culture, that doesn't, that doesn't flow. Give us an understanding. And, and, and the bigger we grow and the more cultures we reach, the more cultural clashes that we're going to have. But offense is a choice. If you give an Australian accent, if you like, hey, g'day, mate, how you going? Put a, chop another, some wood and put a shrimp on the barbie. If you do that, I'm not going to be like, oh, you wound me with your fake accent. And Americans, when they do an Australian accent, sound British. And the British sent us there as prisoners. So if anybody could be offended, I could be offended. 
but I choose not to. Why? Because I think it's funny. Ha ha ha! Trying to sound like me. It's like if you take me to Outback Steakhouse. I don't class that as racism. I just think, woo, free steak. And none of the menu is Australian. Nothing. And I don't pick up their menu and go, this is not from Australia. Well, I'm not offended. Because offense is a choice. And offense is going to try to rob you and block you. When it comes to culture, culture is like a paradigm. It's a set of presumptions that determine your reality. There's a set of beliefs that you've made up that determine your reality. And even church culture around the world is different. I was doing some missions work in Serbia, and a man from Holland, his name was Bert, a great man of God. Bert's one of those people, you just get convicted that you don't pray when you're around Bert, because he's just such a man of God. But Bert used words in English that are outright cuss words in our language, that are fine in Holland. In Holland, not an issue. And he's dropping these cuss words. I'm like, bro. He's like, is this a bad word in your country? I'm like, it's a bad word everywhere. (laughs) We go out to dinner. He cracks a whole bottle of wine, drinks a bottle of wine on his own. I'm like, what are you doing? You, You swear like a trooper. You drink like a fish out of water. Are you even saved? Here's the funny thing. The very next day, the guy who led the missions and I were downtown in Leskovac in Serbia. Not a big town, not a lot to do. And we were playing a pinball machine. And we said to Bert, hey, why don't you come and play pinball with us? And Bert said, I cannot do something so worldly as play pinball with you. Because I'll get kicked out of my church movement in Holland. There's a saying in Scandinavia, in the church, if the Christians uh, in Norway knew that the Christians in Holland drank wine, it would cause the cigars to fall out of their mouth. (laughs) And none of that makes sense in our American church culture. And like, we're like, that's all bad. Every bit of it, it's terrible. It's culture. And some things happen by design, some things happen by default, but it's church, it's culture. And so when, when things rub you the wrong way, it may just be different culture. There's generational culture, there's nationality culture, there's church culture, there's all sorts of forms of culture. Here's what, how you handle it. Number one, when you get offended, don't curse it. Don't curse it. Don't be like, I can't believe you did that. I'm angry at you. You're a bad person. Don't, don't curse it. Then whatever you do, don't nurse it. Don't nurse it. Don't feed it. Don't feed the offense. Gather other people around you. Can't believe he said that. What do you think about that? We think it's wrong too. You've got this tiny little offense and you're feeding it. You're nursing it. What do you think? You get this like little circle of friends and you're all, can I give it a bit of food? And next thing you've got this, this child that you're holding in your arms. The fence just grows out of whack. Don't, don't, don't curse it. Don't nurse it. And then don't rehearse it. Don't rehearse it. Don't let it go over and over in your mind. You have to realize that your mind is creative. And it will make things up that are not there. If you walked in church today and I looked down at your shoes because there's a bit of gum or something stuck at the bottom of your shoes and I give it a bit of a look and I walk away and you don't realize it's the gum that I'm looking at and you just see me looking at your shoes, you get hurt. He looked at my shoe weird today. 
can't believe he looked at my shoe. So weird. He just, I just, you know, just, oh. you walk out of church and you just look at my shoe the wrong way. That's too bad. Person. Get in your car, you're driving along, you say to your spouse, do you see the way he looked at my shoe today? Yeah, just, did he look at your shoes? No, he didn't look just at my shoes because he doesn't like my shoes. He hates my shoes. By the time you're eating lunch, you think you can't get it off your head. Pastor looked at my shoes the wrong way. He hates, he hates my shoes. He hates shoes. He, he doesn't like me because I've never been on preachers with sneakers. I don't have cool shoes. If I had some Yeezys on, maybe he'd be like, but because I've got Target rejects on, he's just like, he hates my shoes. He's terrible about my shoes. You the week you go, you, you're trying to pray. I can't even pray. I see him looking at my shoes and he's so angry about me and you're rehearsing it. And by the time he's like, yes, he hates shoes. He hates all people with shoes. He hates people. I don't think he likes anybody. He hates the church. Why do they even vote him in as the pastor? Because he hates everybody with feet. He hates people with feet and he doesn't like people. And you get my name out on a calculator and you realize that my name adds up to 666. It doesn't take long. doesn't take long before you allow that offense to become a monster in you and divide you. And the devil's like, yes, I achieved what I wanted to do. Don't curse it. Don't nurse it. Don't rehearse it. You've got to decide to reverse it. You meant it for evil. They meant it for good. Reverse it. He doesn't know what he's doing. Maybe he's just looking. What is on my shoe? Oh, wow. I've got a big hunk of gum. I'm thankful he looked at my shoe because I would have dragged that gum into my house and learn how to disperse it. Just let it go. Honestly, most times the things that people are offended by are not worth holding on to. Don't let fear get in the way of your rhythm. He was afraid. Don't let isolation get in the way of your rhythm. He left his servant behind. You're not created for isolation. Two are better than one because they get a good reward for their labor. Don't let, don't let apathy get in the way of your rhythm. He runs and then he sits down and hides under a broom tree. You can achieve anything in life if you can say these two things. I have a dream and I'm not lazy. Don't let apathy, don't let tiredness. The enemy will try to put tiredness on you to create a break in your rhythm. Don't let someone else's failure get in the way of your rhythm. Elijah says, for I am no better than my father's. When I look at the men of God before me, I'm exactly like them. I don't know what your history is, but if your dad wasn't great or your mum wasn't great, uh, in, in the church life, we can look at great church heroes that rose up and did great things and then had horrible failures. We can look at that and allow that to shape. I remember being a young pastor sitting in my office and a hero of mine in Australia had just biffed it badly and lost his church. And I can remember getting my team around saying, if he can't make it, how can we? was so discouraging. Someone else's failure getting into my spirit. But I want to encourage you today. The enemy is just trying to get that into your spirit so it robs your, your, your momentum. You are not them. You are not the result of their decision. You are you. You have your own momentum. God's hands on you. Don't look at somebody else and disqualify yourself because of somebody else's mistake. Don't look at your parenting. Don't look at your background. Don't look at your grandparents. Don't look to the history on somebody else. And don't allow them to disqualify you from being all that God has qualified you to be. Don't let someone else's failure get in the way of your rhythm. Lastly, don't let success, don't let success get in the way of your rhythm. And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. 
And we have said, he's done a lot. He's a great prophet. Call down fire. Outrun Ahab's chariot. Cause disruption to the community in the favor of God. He'd done a lot. He was at the pinnacle. He was on the top of Mount Carmel, garden land, fruitfulness. And Elijah failed in the very point at which he was the strongest. And unfortunately, that's where most men fail. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. In scripture, it's the wisest man who proves himself to be the greatest fool. Just as the meekest man, Moses, spoke hasty words and bitter words. Abraham failed in his faith. Job failed in his patience. Elijah, who was the most courageous of all men, fled from an angry woman. You can be successful and not have a success fail. That's the goal. Be successful but don't have a success fail. Russell, you can come. God wants us to be successful. He wants us to be fruitful. That's his plan. He wants us to live in that zone. So how do you achieve great success? But don't let that success, the thing that's supposed to give you momentum, rob you from your momentum. Well, here's a couple of thoughts I put down. Number one, don't believe in your own advertising. Once you start believing in your own advertising, you're in danger. You start believing what everybody says about you, that you're as great as everybody says, then you're in danger. So don't believe in your own advertising. There was a man, I can't remember his name now, you, uh, uh, Charles somebody, who wrote this book, The Man Who Could Do No Wrong. And he was an Assembly of God pastor in America. And he talked about how he just got to the pinnacle of success. And as the lead pastor of the church, he could do no wrong. He could have, have no failure. And yet at his greatest success was his most dangerous points. His success led to a success fail. Don't believe your own advertising. If you desire to be great, then know how to serve. If you desire to be great, then know how to serve. If you want to be great in God's kingdom... You've got to be a servant of all. Now, that doesn't mean you have to do everything, but it definitely means you have to be willing to do it. You've got to build a large church. I can't do everything. That's the reality. You want the pastor to do everything, the church will always stay microscopic. So we release ministry into the body of Christ, but I should be willing. And so there were times last year when we had youth service on a Sunday night that I was setting up the chairs. Do I feel like my destiny is to set up chairs? No. Should somebody else have set up the chairs? Probably. But do they need to be set up? Yes. Was I available? Yes. How much did it cost me to set a chair out? Nothing. It's a chair. Pick it up, put it in place. Sit in the chair. So I'm not a hero. I'm not expecting anybody here to go like, Oh my gosh. Pastor picked up a chair. And he let people sit on it. Hands up. You've missed the point. You're going to be willing to do anything. Be willing to do anything. You want to be great in God's kingdom, you're going to be a servant of all. The Bible says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will elevate you. He will lift you up. And confront the small issues in their infancy stages. If you've got a habit or a thought or an issue or a problem, 
that may seem tiny, if you allow it to grow, it will destroy you. And the devil is happy just to sit back and wait and allow you to do that in order that you'll get to the biggest point of your career and then he'll expose it. That's how he works. So don't let your success, don't let the great things that God is doing in your life rob you from your momentum. The enemy is out to trip you up and to hold you back and to stop you from being everything God has created you to be. Don't let, don't let, don't let your age rob you of your momentum. Don't let your present position rob you of your momentum. Today is the day to stand up, put your shoulders back, and say, I will be all that God has called me to be. If you believe that right now, why don't you stand and give Jesus Christ a great round of applause in the auditorium. Come on, let's give God some praise. Elijah was a man of like nature as us and he prophesied and it took place he had momentum I want to pray for you today maybe in your life you have made some mistakes maybe there's a significant failure that happened to you and you've never been able to let it go You may, you may not have been at the top of the pile. You may not have been super successful. But you, you made a fail. Instead of being successful, you had a success fail. You failed. You fell on your face. You messed up. I'm here to tell you today it's time to get up. Elijah ran and he hid and he got under a broom tree and he rested and he left his servant. He got in isolation and he's just like, I might as well die. I've got nothing to add. I've got nothing to fulfill. I'm, I'm done. He, he quit on God. I'm here to tell you, don't quit on God because he has not quit on you. If you're at home, don't quit on God because he has not quit on you. You're here today. Why? Because God has not quit on you. He's still for you. And if God before you, then who can be against you? God has not quit on you. We're going to sing a worship song. And there may only be one person here like that today. And if that one person happens to be you, then we're going to pray for you because we love you. But if you look at your life and you have not been able to move on from a failure, a mistake, it may have been great, it may have been small in somebody else's mind, but there's a failure. Maybe it was a divorce that you couldn't get over. Or maybe it was a hurt that you couldn't get over. Or maybe it was something that you didn't do that was done to you and you've absorbed it. Someone abused you. Someone messed with you. But there's been a failure that happened in your life. Maybe it's you. Maybe you've done something and you live in constant regret. You can't get over it and so you can't run because you're held back by being a prisoner of the past. So I'm here to tell you today that the blood of Jesus Christ has come to cleanse us from all our sin. You've got to get your heart right and your hands right. You've got to believe what He says about you, not what the enemy says about you. You've got to believe what He says about you, not what the world says about you. You've got to believe about what He says about you, not your ex-spouse, not your dad, not your mom, not the ex boss, not those people that mess with you. You're going to believe the Word of God and today is your day to make a stand and say, God, I 
want to get the momentum back in my life. I'm stepping out so I can step forward. I'm stepping out so I can run and be all that you've called. Today, I'm going to lay aside the sin and the weight that so easily beset me and believe for you to give me a brand new start today, right here, right now. We're going to sing this.